everybody, it's me, Jimmy Smith, with my next Fight Quest story. This one is Brazil, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So, I was obviously really excited to do this one. Uh, it's a style I've been doing a long time. The difficulty of filming this particular episode, the challenge, was that I already knew Jiu-Jitsu. And I knew it really well, and I knew the people in it. And so, the way it had gone for this, the, a big hook or a big plot point for Fight Quest episodes was kind of the exotic nature of everything. I had never been to Brazil before, but the style I had done for a long time. So much like the boxing episode, I had already, I never competed in boxing, but I'd done a lot of boxing, uh, getting ready for mixed martial arts. So it was a similar kind of thing, except the challenge was there was a lot of insider baseball. And what I mean by that is when I talked about boxing, or boxing was explained to me, or I was explain boxing, explaining boxing to the audience, I'm dealing with a style and a sport that most Americans have some idea of. Boxing's big in the United States. We have a long history of it, the names you recognize, all this stuff. So I could talk about boxing with the people around me, and I wouldn't lose the audience. One of the problems we had when it came to shooting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil is my instructor, a guy named Renato Bajeto, uh, whenever we talk about jujitsu, we'd lose the audience. So there were so many times when we're sitting there talking about jujitsu or the best jujitsu fighters and our favorites and all that stuff. And the producer would literally turn off the camera and go, Jimmy, like, we don't know who Tedede is. We don't know who Shaolin is. We don't. So my instructor and I would get in these conversations about when to use De La Hiva Guard and all this stuff. And my producer would be like, Jimmy, like, nobody knows what that is. You know, our, our conversations about the sport, I'm not going to sit there and go, gee, wow, an arm bar. Or, you know, pretend I don't know what's going on or pretend that I'm not deep in the sport or that I've met a lot of these people. So that was a real challenge. Imagine shooting something about your favorite subject and having to dumb it down for a bunch of people that don't really understand the, the nuts and bolts of it. That was the challenge because I'm with somebody who knows a lot about jiu-jitsu and I liked picking his brain. And I like learning from the guy. But whenever we'd get there, it kind of went over everybody's head because we're talking about stuff in our own language of jiu-jitsu. When two jiu-jitsu dorks get together and they talk about ADCC and Ryan Gordon and Gary Tonin, if, if you're not in that world, you don't know who any of these people are or what they're talking about. I really like when Marcelo Garcia did this, this, and that. I'm like, who's, who's Marcelo Garcia? No idea who that is. So it's actually one of the challenges of MMA, too, when you're commentating MMA like I used to. You can't reference jujitsu that much. People just don't know what you're talking about. You can't go off on some tangent about jujitsu because you can mention who won worlds or something like that, but you can't just freestyle assuming a comparatively casual audience is deep in jujitsu. So that was an issue filming this. So when we got there, and it's really funny, um, everybody, a lot of people, when I did this episode and it aired, they they went, "Wow, you got to meet Hickson and Hoyler Gracie and." I had met Hicks and Gracie 20 times. <laughs> he lived in L.A. Um, we both probably took the same flight over there. So the the irony is all the Gracies, the big names, they lived in the States. Most of them lived in Southern California. This wasn't like weird and exotic and, oh, my God, there's Hicks. And I, like, I had met Hicks a million times. I had competed against his guys at tournaments. He's yelling against me, you know, whatever. So uh, we had chit-chatted a few times about technique. We're just sitting there, you know. He's not a hard guy to approach or anything like that. So there was this idea that I, I flew to Brazil to meet people that lived in California. 
Um, so I've met almost all the Gracies. I mean, or, or, I mean, there are a million Gracies, but I've met a ton of Gracies. It wasn't like, oh my God, Hickson. Like I've already met Hickson. I, you know, I've already seen him at a million tournaments and stuff. So there was this weird, I don't know, contrast of every other master I met. You know, Nacho Berenstein. I never met the guy. I don't you know, seen him on TV, but I never met Nacho Berenstein. In the jujitsu episode was one time where I've met a lot of these guys. You know, me and Gracie is not talked to Henzo, talked to Hoyler. Met Marcel Garcia, met all these guys. So um, it was interesting that people were like, wow, what was it like? I was like, it was like every other time I met Hickson, except I didn't have time to talk to him like I had at tournaments before. So that was interesting. So the nuts and bolts of it, I had never been to Brazil before. I had trained jiu-jitsu, but I had never gone to Brazil. So that was cool, going to Rio for the first time. So uh, I was in the city. Doug was in the country, kind of up the beach sort of, away from the city. I was in Rio, and I was at the original Gracie Humata Academy. I might be butchering the pronunciation. I haven't had to say it in a long time. And that was really cool because you walk in there, and it's like the original Gracie School. I think it's in Copacabana, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, you walk in, there's this big, there are these big pictures of all the, the old Gracies. So it's like there's a huge picture of Halls Gracie Sr. up there. Halls Gracie Sr., for those who don't know, was like Hickson before Hickson. He was the original ass kicker of the Gracie family. Uh, just an absolute monster. And one of the reasons Hickson's so good is he spent a lot of time rolling with Hall Sr. So, anyway, big picture. He died in a hang gliding accident in 1982. There's an old picture of him, you know, as a young man standing there with his belt and all that stuff. There's this old picture of, of Salo Hibero winning a tournament years ago, and he's up there smiling, young Salo Hibero. So, seeing that history stuff was cool. Because I've met these, I mean, I've never met Hall's Gracie, but, you know, I've met Salo and stuff, but, but see him as a young man and, and stuff, and... Well, that's where a lot of this stuff originated. So there's a lot of history there. And seeing that was really cool. And spending time in there with someone who who goes back to that lineage of the family, which is not where I'm from. I'm from Carlson Gracie. Uh, it was kind of the other side. And um, getting to know the people in that, that lineage was really interesting. Because I had met some of them, but, but my instructor, we were able to sit down and talk and, and kind of go into the background of history. And that was fun. So my first day there... As I've explained many times, we get there, we do B-roll stuff, and then the person who goes up to the mountains goes up to the mountains or the, the, the country, whatever. But that day, I'm already in Rio. So we've done the B-roll stuff. It's, it's Doug's travel day, but it's not my travel day. And they asked me, do you want to get started early and just get an extra day? And I said, hell yeah, I want to spend an extra day, you know, Gracie Humata getting my ass kicked. That's, that's awesome, you know. It's just an extra day training for me. So we go there, and whenever you're training jiu-jitsu in the United States, and this is the same thing for Muay Thai, and I'll get into that when I do the Muay Thai episode, you hear all these rumors and myths about what people do in that home country. Meaning, when you train boxing in the United States, the U.S. has a long and glorious tradition of boxing. They know they do it differently in Mexico, but it's not like Mexico's the heart of boxing and everybody else sucks. You know, there's some great boxers coming out of the United States. So you don't get the sense there's any kind of mythology of boy in mexico they do this jiu-jitsu is very much in brazil they do this or at least it was in 10 years ago when i was coming up things have filtered out a little bit better but back when i was training it was boy but in brazil they do x y and z i'm telling you right now they don't do anything different the classes aren't structured any differently they don't teach secret stuff it looks like a class in the united states they show a technique you practice a technique they show a technique you practice a technique they show a technique you practice a technique then everybody fights now, the times of that are different, but the times of that are different in the United States. 
Some instructors spend that whole time on one little technique. Others show you a bunch of stuff. Uh, some teams grapple for an hour and a half. Some grapple for half hour. Penny, stop it. So that was the interesting part, is that you heard all these myths about what people do in Brazil. And the only difference with a team in Brazil, and I'll talk about other teams I trained with in Brazil after this, it's just a lot of high-level belts up there. If, if you're at a – and I grappled today for the first time in I don't know how many months. Uh, one month. What am I saying? I don't know how many, I don't know how many weeks um, since my new hip. So today was my first day on the mat with my new hip. And there were, including me, three black belts actually, actually training on the mat. My instructor didn't train today. But there were three of us on the mat. That's about standard. Okay, three black belts, depending on the school you're in, is a lot. Um, in Brazil, when I was there, there were like eight of them, 10 to 12 brown belts, 15 purple belts, ton of blue belts, high level belts are, are pretty rare in the United States at a particular, any particular class, considering, you know, assuming this in a competition class or something. So the only difference in Brazil is there are just a lot of high level people doing it and almost everyone competes. In the United States, when you go to a jiu-jitsu class, a lot of kickboxing classes, whatever, it's a lot of people that just have regular jobs that want to stay in shape. You know, the people I was rolling with today are mostly accountants and business owners or whatever they're doing, and they're staying in shape, so they do jiu-jitsu. In Brazil, when I trained with Novignon later, uh, about a month later, I went back to Brazil and trained with Novignon, and um, was it a month later? No, no, no. It was, it was a while later, but I spent a month in Brazil. I'm sorry. Um... And I trained with Novignon, and everybody was getting ready for Brazilian Nationals. Everybody. The whole room. 40, 50 guys, and they're all getting ready for Brazilian Nationals. Here, if there's a big tournament, maybe three or four guys go. Maybe. Unless it's a real competition team, and that's a little different. But in Brazil, they just all compete. They all take it really seriously. There isn't a whole lot of, yeah, I'm a gardener. I do this in my free time. It's, it, they take it really seriously. So it's not as though the technique is any different or the training methods are any different. It's just there are more people in the room who take it really seriously and have been doing it for a long time. So that was the only real difference. So I get in there, all these high belts. And anyway, so we, we do some technique. All right, fine. You know, I'm a pro belt at the time. I did the technique. All right, pretty simple. And then it's okay. You're going to start out in somebody's guard. And you're going to try and pass the guard. They're going to try and sweep or submit you. That's just, you're basically, you're going to, you're going to spar. You're just going to start from guard. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to do it all the time. And we did it, and we did it, and we did it, and we did it. And I look around, and nobody else is rolling. They're all sitting on the wall waiting to roll with me. For three hours, we trained. And not everybody training. They basically took turns on me for three hours from guard position. I did well for the first hour or so. And then after that, I was just like, I was done, man. I was done. And I was just getting my ass kicked for the last two hours or so. So I just got brutalized that first day. And that was another part of their strategy making the show is the, the, the ebb and flow of the show was Doug and Jimmy go to the country. They get introduced to the style and the culture in the city or wherever we are. They get their asses kicked as they learn the style. They start learning some stuff. Maybe they get good at something. And then they find victory at the end, whether they win or they lose. They find some 
kind of victory. You know, you get better at it, whatever. It's a close fight, even if you don't win. That's the the ebb and flow of the show. Get your ass kicked, adjust, do better, and then the final fight. The problem with Brazil and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is I already knew Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I wasn't doing that, that the, the learning curve of like trying to figure out the style and it doesn't make sense. So the way they got around that, which I figured out the first day, was they just had everybody kick my ass for three hours. So all the footage from the first day is that last two hours of me just getting murdered. So they were able to cut it so it looked like the first day I just got killed and then it went up. Well, I did fine when I was, you know, one-on-one or I just warmed up or something like that. But, you know, if you beat me up for three hours in jiu-jitsu, eventually I'm going to run out of gas. As, as Elio Gracie said, everybody's minus size eventually. So that's what well, the first day was. So I just got hazed. And I'm like, okay, I've been hazed before. It's not the end of the world. Anytime you go to a new jiu-jitsu school, by the way, you get hazed. Even if they're being nice, you get hazed. So I, I remember I went to the hotel and my face was like out here because a lot of geese stuff and chokes and you're defending all that stuff and it just it just rips the skin off your face. And I was walking through the lobby and all the, the crew, they were sitting there. They had just apparently shot all this B-roll and they just gotten back. And they go, how did it go? And I was like, ugh. And I go to the elevator and I go up to my room and I fell asleep for 14 hours. I just I fell asleep probably 7 o'clock, woke up at 9 the next morning. And... Okay, woke up fresh, took a shower, blah, blah, blah. went to the academy. I was like, all right, I got haze. That's the way it goes. Now we're going to learn some stuff. So we did the same thing with some technique. And then it was, okay, we're going to start out in your guard. And we did the same thing for three hours. Where they, But this time, they started out in my guard. It's the only difference. So we did the technique like anybody would. But instead of just open rolling, everybody rolling, they had me starting in a particular position. And every and I fought the whole freaking room for three hours, so that was the hard part. First two days, I just got hazed for the past for the for the last two hours of the three hour roll. So then, uh, that was the first two days. Then we kind of settled into like the training and stuff. And what I kept uh, picking Hanato's brain about was kind of what made Hickson Hickson. And for people who don't uh, don't know the history, Hickson is considered kind of the lion of the Gracie family, undefeated, never lost in jiu-jitsu, submitted everybody, never even came that close to losing. Um, but he's like a legendary status. I have heard these so many stories that are basically the same. And I heard another one when I was in Brazil where he showed up at Baja Gracie. I don't know which one, probably the original Baja Gracie, back when they had a bunch of murderers. And he fought everybody in the room and tapped everybody out with like the same choke. I mean, I've heard a, a version of that story, I don't know how many times, that he literally, the, 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 one of the versions I heard is he was on his back and let everybody get mount and try a lapel choke on him, and nobody could choke him. And then he got in that same position, and nobody could stop his choke. He choked out everybody in the room. So, you know, he's just that good. And so, anyway, I had never really spent a lot of time with his team. I'd competed against them, obviously, but I never spent a lot of time people who knew him or anything like that. I had spoken to him, but not long conversations. And one of the things I kept trying to pick Hanato's brain about is like, what makes Hickson Hickson? And I'm kind of, I find that concept interesting. If you've ever read um, Outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book, about what makes people exceptional. One of the problems is, he says, well, it takes 10,000 hours of deliberate, pra- of deliberate practice. Yes, to master anything does. But you get people like Kale Sanderson in wrestling went undefeated all four years in college, beating guys who had spent 10,000 hours practicing. 
it's not a matter of being great at something. It's being a level greater than everybody else who's putting in the same amount of time and really trying hard, going every tournament, and he whoops their ass. What makes him that much better? What made Bobby Fischer better than everybody else in chess? 10,000 hours of practice, yeah, but the guys he beat spent 10,000 hours too. Tigran Petrosian spent 10,000 hours. Boris Spassky spent 10,000 hours, and Bobby Fischer kicked their ass. So I was trying to kind of like figure out what made Hickson Hickson. So Hanatsu and I, when we would sit there and talk about it, he was like, I don't know. He goes, he's just Hickson. I was like, did he train more than his brothers? And he goes, no. Did he, was he obsessive about the diet? Did he do that? No, no, no. He, he just, there was no like, oh, and then, I, oh, I thought I would hear some story about, you know, his brothers would go home and he'd stay there and keep training. And it was not really, I mean, he trained a lot, but they all trained a lot. You know, he spent time with Halls Gracie uh, as much as he could, but he wasn't the only one who did that. And then he told me this story. He said, um, Elio had a horse. Remember, Elio, they apparently own a ranch out in the middle of nowhere in Brazil. And Elio had this horse that nobody could break. And he's, and Elio is uh, Hickson's father. And they're standing out there, and Elio made some comment to Hickson and said, oh, if you can break that horse, you can have it. And Elio didn't think anything about it. He was, you know, made the offhanded comment, like, oh, if you ever could break that thing. And he went home, and it was dinner time, And he had been around, all, and he hadn't seen Hickson all day. And it's dinner time. He's like, where's Hickson, right? And, and Hickson walks through the door, and he's all beat up. He had dirt all over him and everything. And he said, I couldn't break the horse. He had spent all day trying to break the horse, getting thrown off this horse and thrown off this horse and thrown all day. And he couldn't break it, but never stopped trying. And Hanato told me, he goes, that's what Hickson's like. He's just he's just obsessive. And so he just had the personality, and obviously a good athlete and everything. And if you've ever seen a picture when he's young, he's built like a brick shithouse. But it's it's that single-mindedness. But, you know, I would argue a lot of the, the Gracies are single-minded. I mean, you know. So, but I, I could never pin down from anybody what made him better, what, what, what he did that was so much better. Obviously, mentally extremely strong. So that was fun, have those conversations. So anyway, so we're doing the training. I'm, I'm getting to know everybody. Then, as I've said many times on these stories, a lot of things they had me do were visually cool, but dangerous or not well thought out or, you know, it's kind of spur of the moment. So... <laughs> In that vein, we're at, I want to say Copacabana Beach. It's like, I don't remember, what, I think it was evening. And they go, okay, we want a, a, a shot of you swimming between these two rocks out there. Okay, no problem. And then Hanato stayed on the beach and was like yelling at me uh, to swim fast or whatever. He was, I couldn't hear him anyway. And But they wanted that shot of me out there swimming like for conditioning and, and Hanato screaming at me. Well, I go out there and I swim between these two rocks or whatever. And then I come back. And I go to bed for the night, and I woke up in the middle of the night, sicker than I've ever been in my entire life. Throwing up, crapping everywhere, couldn't sit up, couldn't, I mean, it was, I've never been that sick in my life. Sickest I've ever been. I was so sick, and they have a shot, I I don't really watch these before I do these, so I remember, if I remember correctly, there was a shot on my door, and you could hear me throwing up. The sound guy, I, I open the door and I, and the sound guy's throwing up. He got sick listening to me be sick. So remember, I'm, I'm you know, he's got a boom mic. And so he hears it in real detail. And then just on the toilet poop. And it was just, it was the sickest I've ever been in my life. And it happened so fast. And so anyway, the next day, because I called the producer in the middle of the night. I'm like, I'm 
dying here. And the next day, they took me to the emergency room in Brazil. And really nice emergency room. Really great medical care. And I go into the emergency room, and my producer goes up and starts talking to the, the nurse at the front desk. And I laid down on a ball on the floor. I couldn't sit up. So I, I laid down on a ball on the floor like this. And I'm just hugging my stomach. And I'm remember, I've been puking all night. I'm really dehydrated. I'm really sick. And a doctor walked up to me. He looks down. And he turns to a nurse. And apparently in Portuguese, he went, we have to get him in a room right now. This person is in deep trouble. And so the nurse and somebody else got me up. And I walked to this like chair thing. I sat in it. And they, they gave me an IV of something. Obviously to rehydrate me because I hadn't had anything to eat or drink. And I was vomiting and pooping everywhere. So they gave me something to rehydrate me and probably some kind of antibiotic or something. And I remember thinking, how can I fight? I couldn't, I couldn't visualize standing up and walking. I couldn't visualize standing up and walking. And I had to fight, I think, the next day. And I was sitting there. I was like, I don't know how this is going to happen. And obviously my producer was like, dude, he, he, you know, we don't think he can fight. He was, they were telling New York, like, how are we going to write the end if he can't fight? Is, you know, just support Doug. And I'm sitting there puking. I mean, you know. So... And I, bet I fell asleep in the chair. And I woke up. I don't know how long it had been. And I remember thinking, okay, I could fight. I don't feel good. But I, I could do it. I could get. And I turned to my producer. I was like, I can do it. I can do it. Because whatever they give me, you're just rehydrating me and, and making me feel better. I was like, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And I was there for obviously a couple more hours until the IV bag was empty and all this stuff. And I don't remember if they, they probably gave me some other medication. And I went back to the room and I told them I'd fight. I said, I can do it. So the final fight came around. And if you do jujitsu, you'll know what I'm talking about. There are fighters in jujitsu that just stylistically are your kryptonite. Not only are they good, they're stylistically just hard to deal with. There are black belts at my current gym, that I deal with pretty well. There are white belts and blue belts, just style-wise, or their build or something weird. They're just a, a pain to roll with. You know, they're, 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 they're much harder to deal with than guys who are much more skilled. So at Gracie Humata, the whole time I was training, there was this guy, Igor Estrella, who was a purple belt. And not only was he a monstrous purple belt, he was really good his style just gave me fits. And it was, he had a style that's popular now, but wasn't real big back then. A lot of open guard, half guard stuff. I know now it's all Baron Bolo guard and all stuff and Dale Heaven. That was, that existed when, when, you know, 10 years ago, but it wasn't as popular. That kind of wide open sweeping kind of style. Igor had that style. He had that style and he was really good. So it was funny because I would I would do well against you know black belts and brown belts and the other guys I would go back and forth and and then I I roll with Igor I was like God damn this guy is just had a style that was really hard for me to deal with and and I have a really good close guard so what he learned is in my close guard I could slow him down and kind of bring him down and kind of stop that whole movement and I could have success but if he opened my guard and was moving around he was so quick and on the bottom he had this tricky. Uh, half guard game that was very hard to deal with. So that one guy, more than any of the black belts I was running with, gave me trouble. Well, in the final fight, that's who I fought. 
So, anyway, I'm on this rock in, in Rio. We filmed a Final Fantasy this, this kind of rock thing. And they set the mats up there, and it was hot. It was hot. And so we're up there, and, and the one thing we, we always did that was just the biggest pain to us was that final, like, the master, Hickson in this case, you've done well, da, 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 now you're going to, you know, you must show your skills or whatever they say. That took a long time to film. It always did because you had every, you had a bunch of fighters around the mat and a jib camera and all this stuff. And so it was always a production. Well, it always took a long time and it really wore us out because you're standing in the sun doing these takes over and over and over again. And I remember standing there and I felt like I was swaying around. And I didn't know if I was or if I was just sick and I didn't feel well. Because remember, I mean, I got, I was in the emergency room, I think, the day before. So. I'm standing there and Hickson's talking or whatever and we're doing all this and it's, you know, hot as balls. We're in Rio. And I am spinning. And I'm so I'm like, I assume I'm not falling because nobody's catching me. So I just stood there and kind of spun around a little bit. And, okay. And we did the final fight. On the show, I think it was, they, they made it look like it was one fight. It wasn't. Uh, to get enough footage, because jujitsu, as you know, if you're a fan or you're not a fan, can be a little slow. You know, so so you want the most exciting stuff for the audience that doesn't know jiu-jitsu. So we fought three or four times, purple belt matches, which I think are seven minutes. And so everything you're seeing in the final fight is like a lot of fighting. Like, you know, yeah, I think it was four times, 28 minutes, maybe a half hour we rolled. And so all those dynamic parts that they show you, that's basically a highlight of us fighting. But we fought a lot. We fought way more than one match. And I just didn't have the gas. And, and Igor is phenomenal. His jiu-jitsu is great. And he was a great pro boy, just better than I was. But also, I couldn't go that long. I just, you know, I'm trying to do it over and over to, to give them enough footage. But I, my body just wouldn't respond at all. So I lost my fight and Doug lost his. And then they filmed the, you know, the, the ending ceremony or whatever. And then years later, I ran into Igor Estrella at a UFC or a Bellator, I forget which one. And Igor's now, he was Tyson Griffin's jiu-jitsu coach. He teaches up in the Bay in California, up uh, near San Francisco. And awesome dude. And he's a black belt, obviously, now. He's third or fourth degree now. And, uh, dude, we, he ran, he said, Jimmy, he said, hey, fight with Igor. I was like, how you doing, man? And, you know, I hugged him. And, we, you know, we, we, we were talking about, he goes, how much fun it was training with me and rolling and doing that show. And I said the same to him. And he's teaching up in San Francisco. If I'm ever in the Bay, man, call me and we'll get together. And a great guy. Great guy. So it was a lot of fun to do. But that was kind of the background of it. And then after we finished the final fight, they had some issue with the, the tapes. And if you know anything about television, those tapes are everything. The digital copies are everything. So they couldn't get them, they couldn't ship them back. Or they, like, you don't ship them, you keep them with you because it's literally the whole show. So they couldn't fly them when, when we were supposed to fly home or something. So, like, all right, we need somebody to fly back with these on, let's say it was Friday. We need to fly uh, next Monday. And we're all like, sure. I'll. So they put us up in Rio for another three days. And I just hung out on the beach, man, hanging out. Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome. But when I went back to Brazil, um, it was after Fight Quest, maybe a year later or so. I was working for M1 Global as a commentator. And we did a show in Brazil. And I stayed there for another three weeks after the show was over. 
and I train in in what is in uh, uh, Flamenco Beach in Rio with Novignon, Dede's team. And I went in there, and there's a, there's a downside to being the Fight Quest guy. There's a downside to it. Uh, one of them is everybody knows you, and everybody wants to roll with you. The show was called Masters of Combat in Brazil. It was pretty popular in Brazil. So when I went to the gym, they're like, oh, shit, Masters of Combat. You know, it was what they call Fight Quest. And everybody wanted to roll with me. I was there, like, on vacation. I wasn't in great shape. I wasn't there to compete or anything. Uh, once again, I rolled with everybody in the room for, like, I don't know how long. And Nova and Yon, just they're a bunch of killers, man. They're, like, 40, 50 people in the gym. They're all just rock solid, unbelievable jujitsu. I had to roll with everybody. Same thing happened when I was in Holland on vacation. I wanted to go to a kickboxing gym and just kind of work out. And I get to the front desk, and she goes, oh, my God, the Fight Quest guy. I was like, oh. And they wanted to have, like, Remy Bonyowski spar with me. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. You know, like, he killed me. You know, but, but they were all big Fight Quest fans and wanted to, to train with me. So I got that treatment and I went back to Brazil. Everybody wanted to roll with the Fight Quest guy. And so I got more of a workout than anybody else. But that's basically how Brazil worked. A lot of fun. If I hadn't gotten sick, I think I would have had a, a much better time. But it did add a lot of drama. It did add a lot of drama to the final fight, and it was a good subplot and everything. So, but it was it was great to do. It was my first experience, first time going to Rio, and it, it was a blast. It was an absolute blast. I'm happy to do it. So, anyway, hope you guys enjoy. And uh, the next one, Israel. The next one. All right. So get ready for that.